This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming today. I have the difficult responsibility of trying to provide a brief overview of the very long and distinguished career of my colleague, Professor Kirch. Um, Professor Kirch completed his Ph.D. at Yale in 1975, studying with the great K.C. Chang. He then was at the Bishop Museum in Honolulu. He became the director of the Burke Museum in, in Seattle in 1984 and is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Washington. We stole him from there in 1989. And since 1994, he has held the class of 1954 endowed chair. Professor Kirch was born and raised in Hawaii, and he has dedicated his career to studying the archaeology of the Pacific Islands with an emphasis on Melanesia and Polynesia in particular. His research looks at the earliest settlements of the islands to European contact and beyond. His work underscores the complex and dynamic relationships between the peoples of the Pacific and the many island ecologies that they lived within. Kirch's work is characterized by a commitment to bringing the highest scientific rigor to his archaeological research, something that led to his election to the National Academy of Sciences, who has also awarded him the John J. Carty Award for the Advancement of Science. Professor Kirch's work is on the forefront of scholars who have turned their attentions towards using the archaeological record as a laboratory for understanding human environment and climate, climate change relationships. His earliest work cemented him as one of the leading thinkers in archaeology on the development of social complexity in ancient societies. Professor Kirch also pushes methodological boundaries, being one of the first archaeologists to truly embrace technologies like GPS in the field and the use of GIS, all while maintaining a steadfast commitment to his plane table maps. <laughs> he has even contributed to the development of new t- dating techniques, including the use of coral, which is just fascinating stuff. He has been regularly funded by the National Science Foundation throughout his career, an important measure of how his colleagues perceive his work, but it is not Professor Kirch's scientific prowess that has distinguished him as one of the generation's leading archaeologists. It is his scientific rigor combined with a profound ethnographic understanding, empathy, and respect for the peoples of the Pacific and the symbolically rich landscapes they created that makes Kirch's archaeological contribution so rich. Don't get me wrong, Professor Kirch does not simply graft ethnographic knowledge onto the past. Instead, his understandings of the ethnographic and ethno-historic world has shaped the kinds of questions he asks of archaeological data and infuses his interpretations so that he considers the possibility that issues other than economic rationality shape prehistoric Pacific Islanders' engagements with landscape and one another. Kirch's book collaboration with Marshall Solins, Anahulu, a two-volume set, Uh, which was awarded the Staley Prize by the School of American Research, demonstrates this creative commitment to using archaeology as a line of evidence in historical anthropology. Professor Kirch has been very prolific in sharing his research. Uh, Google will tell you, as of an hour ago, that he has been cited 7,092 times. (laughs) I'm sure it's gone up by now. It's really very difficult in looking at the record without his CV in front of you to count how many books and monographs he has written and edited. It's at least a dozen. (laughs) 
His most recent book, A Shark Going Inland is My Chief, was recently awarded the 2013 Society for American Archaeology Book Prize for Accessible Writing. So he has a strong commitment to engaging many, many audiences. Um, At Berkeley, he is also well-remembered for a famous memo to the faculty club regarding cocktail glasses, the martini glass memo. (laughs) We we remember that fondly. Um, For his commitment to research in the Pacific and particularly Hawaii, Professor Kirch received the 2011 Gregory Medal for Distinguished Research in the Pacific from the Bishop Museum. And there are many, many, many more honors. But with no further ado, I would like to introduce you to Professor Pat Kirch, a scholar and often a gentleman. Uh, thanks, Laurie. That was a very generous introduction there. I'll have to try and live up to it now with this talk. I first encountered the work of Carl Sauer when I was a freshman at the University of Pennsylvania, 1968. I, when Meg... Uh, told me that they were going to invite me, the committee was inviting me to give this lecture. I went to my bookshelf and I found my copy of Land and Life uh, with my yellow highlighter underlinings very carefully, the whole thing, and the date on it is sometime early in uh, spring of 1968. I was a freshman at, at Penn. Another book that influenced me <clears throat> a few years later when I was a graduate student at Yale was Agricultural Origins and Dispersals. So these uh, two works in particular in, in my own career were very influential early in my undergraduate and graduate student days. And most importantly to me, I think, is the recognition that Sauer in his work was a real precursor to the fields of human ecology and historical ecology. Um, In recent years, last decade or so, I've come to regard a lot of my own recent research as falling within historical ecology. So certainly Sauer uh, is there in the tradition of those who uh, really led to this field. So it's, it's an honor to give this lecture. I just wanted to start with a couple of quotes from Sauer. I'm not going to refer much to Sauer per se. I think it's just implicit in what I'm going to talk about. But I wanted to just bring a couple of quotes in. These are both from essays that were published in, in Land and Life, this summary, but they come from different times in his career. Uh, these two quotes are from his essay, The Morphology of Landscape, and it's landscapes that I'm going to be talking about today. Well, you can read them. I hate when people read the quotes in PowerPoint, so you read them yourself. But you, can, you get the point that, you know, Sauer was saying landscapes are dynamic and they involve both physical and cultural interactions together. I mean, I think that's the essence of the Sauerian view about landscape. And much later in his life, in 1957, from a, an article that I, I know I poured over as an undergraduate, Man in the Ecology of Tropical America, of course, he, you know, he used man. We should now say humans, people. But, um, but again, you get this point that um, we can't have any ecology, any biogeography without <coughs> considering humans and their input on the landscape. Um, it, 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 although many people, <coughs> I think, still try to promulgate that view at times. All right, well, let me get into the essence, the meat of my talk today. And what I want to do is talk to you about three landscapes in the Pacific, areas that I've all, all three have worked in. Um, These are the islands of of Mangareva in the far southeast corner of French Polynesia, Moorea, island right next to Tahiti in the center of French Polynesia, and then the Hawaiian archipelago. I've chosen these islands um, very explicitly because they demonstrate uh, a range both in terms of the natural aspects of landscape and the cultural aspects. And here I've just plotted them in terms of two of the basic uh, physical environmental aspects 
uh, geologic age, which is just on a linear scale here, two to eight million years, and their area in square kilometers on a logarithmic scale, um, <clears throat> going up to 10,000 square kilometers. So you can see, and I'll talk in this order, Mangareva, Morea, and Hawaii. So Mangareva, the first case I'll talk about, are very small islets. It's, it's actually a set of about 14 little islets within one barrier uh, reef lagoon, but totaling only 25 square kilometers, very small land area. But note that it's the oldest um, of these three island cases, about 6 million years, and that will be very critical, as you'll see as we progress. Morea <clears throat> um, is still a fairly small island, but at 134 square kilometers, you know, substantially larger than Mangareva, and a lot younger, about between one and a half and two million years old in geologic age. And then the Hawaiian Islands, and I've just put the two biggest ones here, Maui and Hawaii, are you know, more than an order of magnitude larger. The island of Hawaii, a little over 10,000 square kilometers. I'll talk quite a bit about that. And the youngest, I mean, Hawaii, the island of Hawaii is still erupting hot rock. So parts of it are zero age right now as we speak. And so just kind of keep this in mind as we progress through these three case studies. <clears throat> so I'll start with... Uh, Mangareva, this uh, smallest and geologically oldest. And this slide right here is, actually captures the essence of what I'm going to talk about. I don't know what strikes you looking at this, maybe the white sand beaches where you wish we were right now, uh, beautiful reefs or the coconut palms. But <clears throat> what strikes me as an island uh, ecologist, an island archaeologist, is this denuded landscape, the deforested landscape, these grasslands. And the only vegetation we really see is human-introduced coconut, uh, little scrub coastal pandanus. Uh, it really stands out, to me at least, as very uh, something is, <clears throat> something's going on here. It's very different. As an anthropologist, if we look at Mangareva at the time of early European contact, it also stands out. The Mangarevan society that was encountered by Beachy in 1824 and other missionaries soon afterwards... Uh, was one of small tribelets on these 14 little islands constantly fighting with each other for control of territory. Um, it's, the, the descriptions of <clears throat> um, conflict are, are very uh, sort of gruesome. But other things were going on as well, one of which was, these, now these were Polynesians. We think of Polynesians, we think of people with big canoes, sailing canoes and outriggers. They had no canoes. Right? This is Beachy's uh, drawing of a bunch of Mangareven warriors sort of paddling on a silly-looking raft of... Purao logs, hibiscus tiliaceous logs across the lagoon. <clears throat> Something had happened here where they actually had no more hardwood to make canoes. Mangare was very weird in this regard. So on the cultural side as well, some things were happening um, <clears throat> in this island landscape. When a, a biological and anthropological expedition from the Bishop Museum went to Mangareva in 1934... Um, they went there thinking they were going to find rich biodiversity, which most of the islands in southeast Polynesia have in terms of land snails and birds and endemic insects and plants. And they were really, really disappointed. You read Harold St. John's. He said no other part of the world had he seen so decimated. Um, so again, very weird. No endemic species. You know, what was going on in this place? And there are hints, however, that it was not always like this in Mangareva. So the Mangarevan expedition... The malacologist, C. Montague Cook, found subfossil land snail shells of various endemic species in eroded deposits around the base of the islands. I uh, see some of them here. And these told him that um, <clears throat> there must have once been forests on this island, which would have been the habitat for these kinds of endemic snails. 
just very recently, by the way, a, a recent Berkeley graduate, David Hembry, some of you might know, just published evidence for an extinct insect that he found from the herbarium specimens collected years ago of a gall that's like, uh, he found the traces where the gall was burrowing into the leaves. So there are all these hints that something was different <clears throat> at one time. But there's no question that Mongareva <laughs> is amongst the most deforested, the most barren of not just Polynesian, but oceanic islands in general. Um, Jared Diamond, <clears throat> who collaborated with a colleague at the University of Hawaii, Barry Roulette, in an article in 2004 in Nature, compared, I think it was 69 islands across the Pacific, um, statistically, in terms of the extent of deforestation, and tried to statistically ferret out what the causes of this might be. And among other things, they noted that Mongareva and Easter Island are the, the two most deforested, depauperate islands in the Pacific. And they hinted at some, you know, statistically, some contributing factors and so on. I'm going to tell you what I think really was the contributing factor in a minute. Um, and the clues to that came in my, <clears throat> I've made four expeditions to Mongareva now. <clears throat> the clues came in my second trip to Mongareva in, I think it was 2002, on the island of Taravai, um, second largest of the Mongareva Islands, inhabited today by three people. Um, uh, one's sort of a crazy man, one's an alcoholic, and the other guy <clears throat> I don't think I ever saw. But <laughs> on the back of the island, um, we, this little bay of Onimea we came into, and here <clears throat> you could see there's an eroding shoreline. Um, that's a whole other topic of what's going on with the landscapes in terms of the shores, the coconut tree in the water and so on. But when archaeologists see this kind of a uh, situation, we rush in, of course, and, and begin poking about here because we're looking for exposed deposit stratigraphic sections. And indeed, there was a midden site uh, beautifully exposed. And so we put in a test pit here and another one uh, back farther up in the bush and got this nice stratigraphic sequence about a meter deep of cultural deposit, the dark gray, some burning lenses right at the interface, and then down to sands here, which seem to be pre-cultural, although they're actually probably crypto-cultural. Um, and we got a radiocarbon date right around 1000 AD, which is about the time that Polynesians were coming into this part of the Pacific. But the really fascinating thing was the concentration of bird bones right at that interface. Beautifully preserved. You see that nice beak there. Um, primarily seabirds. And this uh, little plot this is just from one square test pit shows 153 bird bones concentrated right there at the bottom, uh, again, a date, with a date of around 1,000 um, A.D. We subsequently went back to this site in 2005 and got about 1,000 more bird bones, and it's well dated now between about 950 and 1250 A.D. So, and I should say that today, Mongareva is noteworthy, again, for the paucity of birds. There are a few seabirds, but they're very rare. They're not big nesting colonies. There are no endemic land birds, and so on. So uh, this was a you know, striking discovery. We had the bones identified by bird experts in uh, New Zealand, and these are some of the main species. And the most common <clears throat> was this one, a pseudo-Bulwaria petrel, which is not in Mongareva today. It's, in fact, largely absent from all of French Polynesia. It's confined to sub-Antarctic islands for the most part. And yet the, the largest number of bones of those 1,000 bones out of that site are pseudo-Balwaria petrels. <clears throat> Just this last summer, uh, not this summer, but the summer before, in, in uh, ah, it's an error, I should say, 2012, um, I went back to Mongareva with uh, some of my grad students, Julian Swift in the back, or one, and we excavated this site, a rock shelter on the little island of Angikawitai, um, 
Small little rock shelter, but beautifully stratified. And in this site, here's some of the radiocarbon dates, which it goes just slightly later than that Onimea site, about 1200 AD and on up more or less to European contact, we again uh, recovered a very nice faunal record. And this is what I want to point to primarily. This is the oldest deposit deep way down here, the bottom of this trench. And these are, uh, archaeologists refer to NISP, number of identified specimens of faunal material. So from this one, this is just from this one trench, 180 bird bones, and then rapidly dropping down the next stratigraphic layer to 100, and then, as you see, 55 or so, and then essentially none in the most recent record. So, again, um, a very clear record of considerable, um, if not extinction of birds, extirpation of species in the Mangareva Islands. So if we get back to this question, why is this such a severely deforested landscape? What's going on uh, here in Mangareva, and what have birds got to do with grasslands? Well, a lot, I think. And I have to just digress for one second into uh, nutrients on oceanic islands. So the rock-derived nutrients, and in particular as phosphorus we're concerned about, that support terrestrial ecosystems, plant growth, essential for plant growth, on, on any oceanic islands. Um, they come out of the hot rock when it's first produced with the lava flows. And over time, the amount of phosphorus and certain other rock-derived nutrients uh, decline. And this chart from the work of my colleague Peter Vituzic shows you the, the general trend over time, the, say 100% of phosphorus uh, gradually declining. But some of it gets occluded, uh, bound up in compounds that plants can't access Some ends up in the soil organic component. Some is in actual plant growth themselves. And Peter's work on the Hawaiian Islands, summarized in this chart here, shows you the amount of, this is phosphorus remaining percent, if you can't read it, from about 90% on an island uh, surface that's maybe 1,000 years old to very close to zero when you're down here at over a million years old, okay? So on these, this is where we get back to island age. Remember I told you, the Mangrove is our oldest island, five to six million years old, about the same age as the island of Kauai. And on the island of Kauai, in the Hawaiian group, Vituzic's research had shown that the uh, rock-derived pea still remaining on the old land surfaces on Kauai essentially is doing nothing to promote the plant growth on the Hawaiian Kauai shield forest. It's dust blown from Mongolia across the Pacific Ocean dropping into Hawaii that's actually providing the pea necessary for ecosystem maintenance on Kauai. Now, when we look at Mangareva, the Kauai is up in here. This is a, a map of dust input, dust fallout over the Pacific, right? And what we see is that Mangareva is down in this great white hole of no dust, basically. So, uh, an island of Kauai, at least it's getting, you know, whatever this is, 100 parts for something of, um, of dust input. Mangareva is getting basically nothing. And by the way, Easter Island is about here as well. I'm not going to talk about Easter, but the implications are the same. So we didn't have the dust input to help us out. That's, that's absent. We've got an island where phosphorus is going to be severely depleted. What was maintaining this ecosystem at the time that people came in? Birds. This is my uh, hypothesis, is that these big seabird nesting populations that we have very clear faunal evidence for, uh, you know what seabirds do. They go out to sea and they fish. They eat fish and they come back on the land and what do they do? I'm to the delicate audience, I don't want to say, but you know what they do. They 
poop on the land. They produce guano, right, uh, in large quantities. And some ecological work, for example, in the Gulf of California Islands, shows that up to six-fold concentrations of what would be there otherwise result from seabird inputs. So our hypothesis is that there was indeed, at 1000 AD, at the time Polynesians arrived, um, the kind of of terrestrial forest supporting land snails, insects, and so on, that other Pacific islands in this sector had. But it was being maintained by birds who were functioning as the nutrient transporters from the ocean, bringing nutrients into the land. When that got truncated by Polynesians both taking these critters for food, these would have been naive fauna and very tasty, and you you could just walk up to that guy and say, hi, I'm putting you in my earth oven tonight. But these are very small islands too, so it wouldn't take much to to really disrupt their nesting and roosting patterns. And as people began to clear forests and try to make gardens, because these Polynesians were horticulturalists, they destroyed habitat. So for a combination of direct predation, habitat destruction, etc., the birds go, as you see. And so what do we get? We get this landscape that it was severely deforested, uh, was never able to return to a state of, of forested. It could not recover. It was highly vulnerable. So my first case here is about vulnerability, where the natural circumstances of geologic age, et cetera, led to a situation where when humans came in, um, you know, after a few years, there were consequences that were basically irreversible. And that led, in time, of course, to cultural adaptations, things like the lack of hardwood, for example, the simple rafts, um, the restriction of cultivation to tiny little valley bottoms where there was some alluvial soil, the conflict, and so on. So we can see how, uh, in a Sawarian sense, the natural and the cultural environments here in Manga River were so closely intertwined. All right, that's my, my first case, my smallest, uh, probably my most uh, disturbing from a point of view of how humans can really disrupt ecosystem functioning. Uh, now I'll turn to the island of Morea, a, a beautiful place, Professor Stoddard here, as I'm sure remembering the days of the uh, field schools at the Gump Station, UC Berkeley has this wonderful Gump Station well, just out of view that I've also uh, worked at. I've been working on Morea for about 12 years now intermittently with a number of my grad students also, focusing particularly on this vast big valley in here, the Valley of the Opunaho, which I want to talk about. Now, the island of Morea, well, you look at it here, it's obviously not deforested. There are patches on ridges where you get terminal grasslands, but for the most part, it's forested. In fact, the forest up in the valley has regrown over archaeological sites, climax forests, uh, or it looks like climax, um, in 200 years since depopulation has recovered. So it's not vulnerable like a mangareva. It actually, and partly because it is young, there's still a high nutrient in, uh, input or output of the rocks, if you will. It doesn't have that kind of nutrient limitation that the mangareva situation has. And when we look ethnographically, ethnohistorically, and what was going on on Morea, as opposed to Mangareva, at the time of European contact, uh, we don't find a situation of you know, people in... There, there was war, it's true, but it was a different kind of war, organized politically top-down war for, for conquest of entire islands. It wasn't this constant intertribal strife and competition. Um, and the society that occupied uh, Morea and adjacent Tahiti was very complex. It was what we call a complex chiefdom, um, this is a, a scene, one of my favorite engravings from the, um, in this case, the third voyage of Captain Cook. There he is, Captain Cook. 
Um, I love this because it's a sort of dispassionate enlightenment, uh, you know, image of the explorer who's witnessing a human sacrifice, right, on this temple. But he seems unmoved. He's just observing it all, and it's uh, Weber, the artist, is recording it, and they hear their drumming, you know, and then you see the skulls on the altar and the pigs on the offering table and so on. It's a wonderful uh, representation. But anyway, uh, the point is <clears throat> a different kind of society was occupying Morea, a very complex society politically, um, socially, um, not at all like a Mangareva. But let's look at the Valley of the Opunaho and this landscape, this island landscape. And here I, I'm going to focus on this particular valley landscape, um, one of two great valleys in the interior of the island, where my well, my mentor is actually Roger Green, initiated archaeological work in the 1960s, and then we have carried on. And I've had uh, several of my students now uh, pick up where Roger left off. So this valley is quite well studied archaeologically and uh, also by natural uh, scientists. If we, well, I'll just show you a little bit of the, the archaeological evidence. So the Oponaho Valley was was very densely inhabited. There's evidence of a population, well, we don't know the exact numbers, but estimates of certainly up into the low thousands of, of occupants in the valley. There are elaborate uh, round-ended house uh, terraces. There are substantial numbers of religious structures, marae. So uh, evidence of, of a very substantial um, human occupation. But when we mapped out the settlement patterns in the interior of the Punahou, we don't find a uniform distribution by any means. This landscape is actually very patchy in terms of where the evidence of human occupation is concentrated. There are sectors where there's very dense concentration of these house sites and these temples. And i just show you, you know, a few images of these kinds of, of temple. Uh, it's a paipai. Um, they have these backrest stones where priests sat while praying and so on. So these archaeological complexes are in very discrete clusters, if you will. Uh, one of them, is, for example, is running on this ridge here. But if you go next door here, and there's nothing so this puzzled me for a long time. Why was the archaeological um, <clears throat> landscape so disparate, highly concentrated in some areas, and very little evidence of occupation in others? And here, this is just showing you uh, some of these temples. Here's a, a big temple complex at the top of the Tupuuru sector, and a, a digital image we made of one of these uh, sites. Well, <clears throat> I think to understand this landscape, we need to understand a different kind of physical process going on. Uh, young islands, high rainfall in this case. So while this island is only, you know, at most, the oldest part's two million years old, you can see the great degree of dissection here. Um, Mount Rotui, you know, these steep sides coming off of it, deep embayments of the Punahou Bay and the Pau Pau Bay. Um, and note the cliff topography. I was trying to get my best sort of pictures to show you these, these cliffs. So what's going on in, in the Opunaho in terms of natural processes of valley formation are a couple of things in particular. One is massive landsliding that, that goes on quite often, mass wasting as the geomorphologists call it. Big sections will come off these cliffs and come roaring down into the valley, leaving big landslides or debris flows. At the same time, there's about where I'm standing taking this picture uh, we don't have really good rainfall records. The French haven't maintained them. But the estimate is 250, 300 inches of rain a year back at that valley head. It's constantly raining or fog dripping. So you get constant chemical erosion as well and deep leaching going on. 
Now, if we, when we turn to looking at the soils of the Apunahou then, the French have done some nice soil mapping. Now, here's the bay, and you see the streams coming up. Um, what you see is, again, a very patchy kind of soil distribution there. And the, the very dark red, uh, probably can't read it here, and it's in French anyway, but these are the ferrolytic soils, they call them, iron-rich. These things are very red. You see them? They're, they're like the color of my shirt or whatever. Um, and then we get these other uh, patches in here, it's more in this color, that are eutrophic soils. They're, they're brown soils. And you can really see it. So we had, uh, with my soil uh, scientist colleague, Oliver Chadwick, a couple of years ago, we did a series of sampling through there. And, you know, we had the Munsell color chart book out. And we just got so boring. It's like, okay, yep, that's the something, you know, red. That's the something Y, 5YR, whatever the eutrophic. And of course, we dutifully recorded it, but we could have just said it, you know. Um, so what we're getting... The, it turns out these eutrophic soils are what form on these young landslides that come down, these big, huge debris flows, right? Because that brings the fresh rock and the nutrient. And even though it might be scary about living on a landslide, well, the problem is living there before the landslide comes down and getting covered. But once it's come down, maybe that's a safe place. So what it turns out is that people were targeting actually the landslide debris flows as where they were concentrating their settlement. And here's an example. So we did this soil transect. It's about a kilometer long here. Um, this is the, the most important com- temple complex to the upper end of the valley. And there's a big concentration of, of agricultural and residential sites and so on all through here with these temples right at the top. So Oliver Chadwick and I, he's at UC Santa Barbara, a soil scientist, we, we did a transect down here, took soil samples. He took them back to Santa Barbara and ran nutrient analyses on them. So this is a, the numbers here are giving you what we call base saturation, which is a percent value, basically, of uh, bases, <clears throat> including things like phosphorus and other soil nutrients. But just think of 100 would be fantastic, like, you know, your sweet potatoes, whatever, would just grow incredibly. <clears throat> and it's zero, forget it. There's no, there's no nutrient in the soil. As we came down this thing, we're tracing an old debris flow, basically. There's the lip of it. And we come to another debris flow, and then we come to ferrolytic soil. So these are all eutrophics in our color scheme. These were ferrolytics. And if you can read the numbers, you know, percent 58, 52, 56, 49, 33, 29, 9, 5.4, right? The nutrient just is gone, okay? And this is, guess what? Archaeological features, here to here, okay? So it's a simple story in some ways, um, but an interesting one, where, where in this landscape, People were adapting to um, the mosaic, if you will, of available soils and nutrients. And you know, their settlement pattern was very highly determined at the gross level, not the, you know, where the houses necessarily in relation to the temples and so on. That's cultural. But at a gross level, their settlement pattern is highly determined by this kind of island landscape. And we looked in more micro detail. That was a big, long transect. But here are two smaller settlements up in the Amahiti. And you probably can't see these, these maps terribly well, but I've mapped in here all the little agricultural terraces and house sites, and et cetera, et cetera. And then in the blue, we've shown where the high nutrient value is. That's actually the debris flow. And what they did, this is all agricultural stuff. There's an irrigation system in here. But where the values are low, they got their house sites out on the ferrolytic soil around them. I mean, they really were micro positioning their use of the land in relation to, you know, garden on these eutrophics, take every bit of it, don't waste it for house sites. Put the house sites here out on the red, muddy soil, okay? 
Same thing here, big, huge debris flow. This is a huge debris tongue, high nutrient value, temple at the top, agricultural terraces going all the way down, house sites to the side. A, a simple story in some ways, but very different from Mangareva. But again, I think we see, the, you know, to take this Sawarian view, this interaction between humans, culture, and various aspects of the physical environment, which they couldn't, you know, they, they couldn't change, they couldn't control. They just adapted to it. They adapted their landscape, their settlement pattern to this. But we don't see in Morea anything like this degradation that we did in Mangareva. It was, it was, in that sense, a much more benign environment than Mangareva. Now I want to turn for the last part of my talk to Hawaii. This will be slightly longer because Hawaii is bigger and more complex. Um, <clears throat> this archipelago in the northern uh, Pacific, which I think probably many of you actually probably visited as, as tourists, if not <clears throat> as uh, scientists. Um, w- when we look at Hawaii, again, anthropologically, ethnographically, it stands out as well within the whole realm of Polynesia, also the opposite extreme of a Mangareva. Um, I've taken this painting from the, the late Hawaiian artist Herb Kawainui Kane. I love his representations, very detailed, accurate representation. This is supposed to be King Kamehameha I who unified the Hawaiian Islands soon after European contact with his high priest Heva Heva standing in front of his temple at Ahuena, which has actually been restored. If any of you have been to Kona, you might have seen this site. It's been reconstructed in front of the King Kamehameha III Hotel. Uh, but it uh, doesn't quite look like that today. But so Hawaii, at the time that Captain Cook arrived in the early time of early European contact, um, was obviously this, this extremely complex society, so complex that some of us are now arguing that we shouldn't be calling this a chiefdom at all, that these were early emergent archaic states in the last couple of centuries prior to European contact. I'm not going to go into that argument today, but I'll just sort of assert that. Um, but what was it about this set of landscapes, this archipelago range landscapes, that might have, and I don't want to say determined because I don't believe in environmental determinism, but might at least have provided the opportunities uh, for archaic states to emerge in this part of Polynesia. And so here we want to look at some agricultural landscapes across the Hawaiian archipelago. And I use these two images sort of iconically as representing the two major kinds of agroecosystems that emerged across Hawaii um, during the pre-European uh, period. The one, um, and that mean, if that isn't a classic iconic kind of landscape, terracing, Bill Denovan sitting there, um, which we find across all, all over the world. Um, but here in, in Hawaii, it was highly elaborated, uh, irrigated terracing for wet taro colocasia cultivation, very much like rice uh, in terms of the way these operated, but for taro. The plants didn't have rice. And then a totally different kind of landscape, the dryland rain-fed systems, extensive field systems. If you can see these, these lineations in the landscape, all plot boundaries, actually human-manipulated um, embankments separating fields. We had these two major kinds of agroecosystems in, in Hawaii, and I'll talk primarily first about the, the dryland and then briefly just show you how the wetland comes in in contrast at an archipelago scale. For the last, well, what it is now, 12 so years, I've been involved in a fairly major uh, multidisciplinary project investigating these kinds of landscapes, these, these agricultural landscapes in Hawaii. The Hawaii Biocomplexity Project, we were <clears throat> funded by NSF's initial um, Biocomplexity in the Environment Program, and then uh, 
a second phase by the Human Social Dynamics Program. We're kind of in a, in a low-key phase right now, thinking about how we're going to get some more funding and go back for a third phase, because we, as yet, have really concentrated only on the dryland systems, and we sure would like to get in and work on the irrigation system at the same level of, of uh, detailed investigation. But And there's a multidisciplinary team. I won't go into all the cast of characters, but I, I just want to... Peter Vituzik over at Stanford has been my main uh, co-principal investigator uh, in this work, and I want to acknowledge him this evening. So <clears throat> we've looked at a number of study sites, but I'm going to talk just about this one, the northern tip of Hawaii Island, the Kohala District. Now, you see it there in this <clears throat> enhanced aerial... Uh, a view. So the Hawaiian archipelago, just to point out, is an age-progressive um, volcanic hotspot archipelago. So we've got a hotspot down here under the island of Hawaii that's currently active. It's actually pushing up a new island, Loihi, here. If you're interested in long-term real estate investment, it's out there. <laughs> About a half million years, and you'll realize your investment. Uh, but So islands emerge here, and because the plate, Pacific plate, gradually moves like that, islands move off the hotspot, become dormant, uh, Volcanism ceases, they gradually erode, and you get the beautiful sort of weathered landscapes of Oahu or Kauai, the Garden Isle, as they call it, that you know, people are very familiar with. So it provides a very nice kind of model system, as we say, um, because it's all the same kind of basic geology, basaltic rock, but we get this, this uh, geologic progression up to about 6 million years old here in Kauai. We also get a windward-leeward um, cross-cutting contrast in terms of the amount of rainfall, so that sets up a nice orthogonal um, set of two main physical var- uh, variables. Now, here's this dryland landscape, and if that isn't an iconic landscape, an anthropogenic landscape, I don't know what is. I hope you can make this out. Again, these, you see these lineations, thousands of them, right? Every one of those is a field boundary created by Native Hawaiian gardeners in the pre European period. And even though this has been ranched now and cattle ranching for 200 years, more or less, it still dominates the landscape. It's not the cows or the fences or the, the you know, barbed wire fences that dominate the landscape. It's the imprint of, of centuries of intensive Hawaiian cultivation that still dominates this landscape. Um, as you get down in the drier zone, that disappears because it was too arid down here to cultivate. But a, a whole central section of the leeward slope of the Kohala Mountains, about 60 square kilometers continuously, was in agricultural system. And that's a big archaeological site, 60 square kilometers. And you really can't walk more than about 10 meters in any direction without encountering an actual physical a wall, a house site, you know, a trail, or whatever. <clears throat> so we've mapped this system out intensively, initially uh, using aerial photographs. All the blue lines are, are field and trail boundaries. They just merge into a blue mush. There's so many of them. Uh, it's mapped against rainfall here, which you can see there's a pretty tight correlation to. When we uh, began this work in the early 2000s, one of the first things we were looking at is, again, the relation of the human Polynesian land use to um, the nutrient situation on, on the soils. And Peter Vituzik ran these transects, which you see here, five of them across the boundaries of the archaeological field system, which is shown in the shaded area, and we found a very distinctive pattern in relation to soil nutrient availability, that 
uh, which is plotted in those, those two charts. It basically, uh, and the reason there are two, there's a white and a yellow, is we have two geologic uh, main ages on this, so you have to separate those out. One's about 150,000 years, is about 400,000 years. So the 400,000 year one is going to have lower nutrient just because longer time for leaching. But the patterns, so this is the older one in yellow, but the patterns are the same. And the field system boundaries are shown by the vertical lines. Basically, um, to cut to the quick, the Hawaiians, over several centuries, identified a sweet spot, as we like to call it, a seam running right along this mountain, and they maxed out every piece of that that they could cultivate and intensified it over several centuries. Uh, as Peter put it once, they were farming the rock. It was very interesting. They wanted the rock of a right age. It could be too young and not too old, but just right. It's the Goldilocks theory of farming in Hawaii, right? Um, and this is what they found. They found the same thing on Maui, but I'm not going to talk about that one. So we, we mapped this uh, landscape in more recent years. We've applied LIDAR. Some of you know the technique of, of LIDAR, airborne <coughs> radar. And uh, this has given us a chance to, to really map. We used to go out with GPS. I used to go out with plane table. But <coughs> uh, and then we go out with GPS and walk these lines. Well, now we just fly a plane over it and get you know <coughs> 5 billion points or whatever. But look at the, it's just gorgeous mapping. This is just a very small piece. This was done by Greg Asner at Stanford at the Carnegie um, Airborne Laboratory in collaboration with our group. So you see, again, this is running, the, the, running up and down slope like this, and all of these field embankment lines. And then you can see the trails that cross-cut. And the trails were not just trails for people moving. They were social boundaries between territorial land units held and managed by chiefs or sub-chiefly family groups. This is a, a habitation site, a stone enclosure. There's another one here, uh, etc. So a really incredibly anthropogenic landscape, highly managed. We have explored this in other ways. We wanted to know not just what the landscape looked like spatially, of course, and, and map it out, but how did it develop over time? And so we did a number of excavations through these field embankments, um, <clears throat> you don't worry too much about using trowels when you've got several thousand square kilometers of embankment length. You go in with a backhoe. So uh, we just trenched across these things. But then we very carefully sectioned and uh, recorded stratigraphy and sampled. And what we found were these pockets of original soil under embankments. When people began to build embankments and separate fields, that little area that was under the embankment got taken out of cultivation. It provided us interesting little windows into... Um, the original uh, soils, but they also provided material for radiocarbon dating. And so now we have a pretty good chronology, AMS radiocarbon dates, for the field system. We know that it began to develop around 1400 AD and then continued right up, and it was still operating at, of course, at European contact, probably at peak maximum intensity, uh, and then after the decimation of Hawaiian population with European diseases to which they had no resistance the whole system collapsed. And by missionary accounts, by the 1850s or 60s, the whole thing was basically in a state of, of almost total collapse. And then the cattle come in. But then we, so we have a pretty nice idea of the time frame now, the formation of this landscape. And we've studied parts of it in, in much more intensive detail. I just want to show you here how we've sort of deconstructed and reconstructed, as it were, this landscape, how it evolves over time. So here's a, a chunk. It's the same one I showed you with the LIDAR image. That's a Google Earth image. Um, these things are very visible on Google Earth. This is a map produced uh, from the <coughs> LIDAR imagery, an archaeological map. And you can see it's, you know, it's a very complex-looking 
Um, this is a very small, small area here, right, of this field. So it's 100 meters on the scale. So we're looking at maybe five, 600 meters across this half a kilometer. You see all these walls, these embankments, the enclosures, you see other small, the red dots are other small kinds of features, and you see these trail divisions running, you know, cross-cutting the embankment. So what does it all mean? How did this thing evolve? Well, if you stare at this long enough, you'll start to see that the <clears throat> embankments, actually some of them are going under trails, and some of them are coming and abutting. These two don't actually go under. There's a funny abutment. Or <clears throat> you find another one, look at this one, abuts, and it doesn't continue there. And so when you actually tease this out, you can get a relative sequence of the formation of this system, increasing intensification, increasing partitioning of the system over time. So I'll just run you through um, this thing. It began like this. That's the oldest set of embankments that we can tease out, the longest ones which go under trails, big, widely spaced out fields, maybe one division. These two names, these are two ahupua'a, which are territorial units controlled by chiefs. So the, the one oldest trail is separating that. Next phase comes in, they start subdividing more, um, subdiv more field subdivisions, okay. Next phase comes in, ah, we're getting more social boundaries inserted into this. Not just the Ahupua division, but some sub-Ahupua divisions, probably what the Hawaiians called ili. Suggesting you know, a degree of management control, the imposition of this very regular landscape as and remember now, we've got Hawaiian society, increasingly hierarchical, complex, chiefly controlled. Think of the implications of this. There we go again. We get into the next phase, even more regular spacing of these things. As we worked on it, I kept thinking of, of Clifford Gertz, actually, in his original work on agricultural involution in, the, in Indonesia, and what he called, you know, how intensification proceeds to this ultimate shared down, sort of squeeze down poverty. Something like that was going on in Hawaii. Um, so we get this. And that's the sort of final phase, I think, that, that we see. Now we can also put the habitation sites into it. So we, we studied this, as I say, in detail over one summer and excavated. So here are all the habitation sites now shown. And guess what? They phase in in a very similar way. So there's the first uh, and oldest habitation site. Um, for those of you who like house society theory, it may be the ancestral house within this area. There come the next phase of habitation sites. There's the next one. They're the next two. And this is what the landscape then was like at its end point, basically, the time of European contact. Highly divided partition landscape, each household, full of households with these narrow territorial divisions, <clears throat> cultivating these very neatly spaced out uh, fields. Okay, so that's the, the dryland uh, landscape and, and one example of how it evolved over time. Let me just briefly bring in the irrigation systems, at, and I'm going to do this at a more archipelago-wide scale. I'm not going to show you in detail the, the same kind of archaeological data, but remind you again about Hawaii as a kind of model system for understanding these landscapes. The geological age progression, zero to six million years old. The cross-cutting windward-leeward climate um, contrast, wet on this side, windward, as the uh, oceanic trade winds come in bringing moisture. All the rain falls on the windward sides of the islands, and, and so it's very dry on the leeward sides. Uh, if you've been to Waikiki there, you know that's leeward. That's why Waikiki's there, because it only gets 10 inches of rainfall a year. But you just drive 20 minutes to the poly, and you're at 250 inches of rain a year. <clears throat> uh, so <clears throat> just to illustrate this again, 
hot rock, zero age down in Big Island of Hawaii. Get up to, to Maui. Um, there, Alex, that'll make you. Uh, my student, Alex Bear, works there. Uh, make him homesick. That's Kaupo. And uh, up on the island of Kauai at about 5.1 million years there. Great valley dissection. You know, very, very deep valleys. I've been talking a lot about soils and nutrients. They're obviously extremely important. I just want to show you this, this chart, uh, which shows you the, particularly this chart. Um, this is, again, base saturation, nutrient availability, base cation saturation, plotted over four different age substrates. So, and it's plotted, so each color is a different age. We're getting progressively, progressively younger as I go out like this, or older as we come this way. And that's rainfall. So the relationship at any particular landscape of a given age, right, is this kind of a, of a non-linear relationship. That is, we start out, say, let's take the 10,000, that's 10,000 years old landscape, and we've got 100% base saturation initially. And we get up, rain, as rainfall increases, rainfall increases, going to the windward side. We hit about 1,500 millimeters of rainfall, and what happens? It's not a linear period. It's boom, it falls right down, okay? So we've got a threshold where leaching occurs and nutrients disappear. Now, if we push that back, so we, we're getting back to, say, 400,000 years, that's part of our Kohala thing. You can see that was the threshold, for example, that bound the upper edge of the field system. People couldn't expand any farther inland. We get to Kauai, and it's basically so old that you know there's essentially no... Uh, nutrients left. So if we, this is another way of plotting that if you want rainfall against parrot material age, basically um, if you, t- you could take any place in a Hawaiian landscape, any, any given place, and it might fall anywhere on this chart. These are all real places in a sense on the Hawaiian landscape. But only down here could you actually run an intensive field system for century after century without having the thing collapse. Only there would it be sustainable, okay? That's the point. So there's only a small space, if you will, uh, in terms of age and rainfall relationships where you can do that kind of, where you can have a koala field system. Uh, so with, with that in mind, those parameters, <clears throat> we set out to model the possibility for these kinds of landscapes across the archipelago scale. So we started with a dry system, which we now understood very well, 10 years or more of working on it. Uh, so we mapped out the actual you know, system, uh, say here in the dark uh, line, approximately. <laughs> then we, using those parameters of soil and rainfall uh, age, soil nutrient availability, we modeled the potential for doing this kind of dry land agriculture. The fit is actually pretty damn good. I think Nico, uh, our GIS guy, would probably say it's not too bad. Uh, of a fit. We got this little tail out here, which is bothering us. We've got to go out there and see what's going on. Uh, but we said, okay, we think we've got the parameters tied down pretty well. Now let's apply them to the rest of, say, the Big Island. So there's our Kohala field system. And what we found is that, you know, of this 10,000 square kilometer island, actually only a small part of it would have supported these kinds of entirely intensive agricultural systems. The other main area, actually bigger than Kohala, was Kona. Guess where King Kamehameha and Kalaniopu before him, and guess where the royal centers are and all that stuff, right there in Kailua and at Honaunau and so on. And we know a lot about there are parts of this archaeologically that still remain. A lot of it's been torn up by resort development and so on. But it, it is there, and we know of it archaeologically. And the other great one was down here in Kau, another major center of chiefly control and interest. So 
this one is, is a little um, difficult because it all got put into sugarcane plantations in the late 19th century, and we can't see anything uh, left of it. But basically, we can now model where on Hawaii Island you could have done this kind of intensive, uh, very intensive field system cropping. Then we extended the model to the whole archipelago. And what we found is there are zones on Maui, my dear area of Kahikinui, and Alex's area of Kaupo is one, and over in Kula, um, <clears throat> where you could do this. The tip of Molokai, because it's young geologically, and a few parts of Oahu, because again, they're young rejuvenation lava flows, so they're actually young enough where you could do that. You'll notice Kauai is not even on this map. Because Kauai is so old, you cannot do this kind of dry island cropping. The shield surfaces are just depleted of nutrients. Now, I'm almost through with this. Um, let's just flip it over and look at this other kind of landscape, the irrigation systems, these systems for taro, not the dry island, but the rain-fed. So we said, let's try to model that. Took the island of Oahu, where we knew from ethno-historic accounts that there was lots of taro cultivation that went on, and, and still actually goes on. Some Native Hawaiians have been rejuvenating these techniques. Uh, so you can actually go there and see it in a few places still going on today. Um, so we used, again, <clears throat> GIS. We looked at what are the parameters for irrigation. Well, you've got to have permanent streams, permanent stream flow. Fortunately, we have good data in Hawaii from the state natural <clears throat> resources department, et cetera. So we could map in the streams. We'd put buffers around them. Uh, we would look at, I don't know what this is. I can't read it myself, but something to do with uh, stream flow. Anyway, combine the parameters in, in GIS uh, modeling, and we come up with <clears throat> a map of where Potentially, you could do this kind of irrigation agriculture on the island of Oahu. Um, quite a lot, quite extensive, as you can see, but all associated with the, the alluvial plains at the base of these uh, streams, these permanent streams. This one was a little, uh, little bit of a glitch, I think, because it actually relates to some damming and some uh, historic period modification. I don't really believe that, that big one in the center, but that's what the model tells you, so you've got to be true to you know, what it's generating. In any event, then, oh, and the, what we did uh, with the Oahu one, I should say, is we then turned to the ethnohistoric records, uh, particularly the records of the Great Mahele of the 1850s, the division of lands between the king and the government and the common people, where there are all these claims made for taro fields people were still cultivating. And we compared that, and we have a very good fit that these are exactly the same areas that people were uh, claiming and cultivating uh, into the early post-contact period. So with some confidence then that our parameters were right, we then apply this again to the other islands, the archipelago, and we find Kauai is the, the gem of all gems for irrigation, although you can do no dryland intensive cultivation there. It has the most irrigation land of, of potential of any of the islands. Parts of Molokai on the south coast and in the, in the valleys doesn't show very, very well, but it's there. Significant areas on West Maui and the northern coast of Maui, but not down here where the dryland potential is and along the windward coast of Hawaii Island in small valleys and gulches, and particularly in Waipio, another royal uh, center there, according to oral traditions. So if we plot this out island-wide and we look at the total areas, um, even though Hawaii Island is the biggest island by far of the archipelago, 10,000 square kilometers, only about 43 of those square kilometers could have been irrigated. And again, mostly up in Waipio here. As against Kauai, a much smaller island, and yet 145 square kilometers. And this is my last slide. Here are the dry and the wet systems plotted out then um, across the archipelago. Kind of schmooze it together a little bit to fit on one slide. So you can see the, and unfortunately, the color coding probably should have been 
done a little differently. I should put the irrigation in blue because that's more logical, but it's the dryland in blue, so not to get confused. And the green is showing you the irrigation potential. But you can see as you go up and down this archipelago, it's really it's the young big islands that were supported by dryland, intensive dryland cultivation. It's the old um, islands, somewhat smaller in the <clears throat> northwestern part of the archipelago that were hugely supported by irrigation. I'm not going to go in great detail and talk to you about the implications for this sociopolitically, but I'll just briefly mention them. So at the time of Cook's arrival, what do we have? We had uh, emergent archaic states on Maui and Hawaii supported by these big intensive dryland systems. They're big enough, they supported big enough populations, 100,000 people at least probably on Maui, maybe more on Hawaii, to support an archaic state. But at the same time, these were the systems that were so susceptible to, to drought, to perturbation. Probably surpluses were declining. I, we do have evidence for nutrient drawdown. Um, guess where the aggressive war leaders were coming out of in these emergent archaic states? Well, Kamehameha for one, Kalaniopu, Kahikili on Maui. Just before um, <clears throat> yeah, Cook's arrival, Kahikili had conquered Oahu, right? Why did he want Oahu? Well, all of that irrigated taro land, right? And what did Kamehameha want? He wanted Oahu too and Kauai. And after Kahikili died, Kahikili told him, you'll get Oahu over my dead body, which turned out to be true. Um, and when Kahikili died, Kamehameha made his push. Of course, he had European arms and so on to help him. But what he was really after was all of this irrigated uh, land. And uh, he tried to get Kauai. He had to finally get it by diplomacy. So Kamehameha settled in here. He lived here for quite a lot of time. All his warriors were settled around this island. So this landscape, this complex, in some ways, in other ways, fairly simple in terms of these cross-cutting variables, um, these agricultural landscapes really were critical, I think, to the dynamics, the sociopolitical dynamics that were playing out in late Hawaiian uh, pre-contact history. So uh, that just sort of summarizes it. Um, so that's it. I'm not going to have any sort of grand conclusion to this. I wanted to. I think I've sort of made the case with the three case studies. Um, island landscapes, uh, very different, and yet certain key variables, soil, nutrient, geologic age, um, playing out in all of them, but playing out in different ways. Um, not, I don't think, as Sauer would have said, a deterministic model of environment determining the form of culture, but influencing it, constraining it, challenging it in very, very interesting ways. So i just leave you with another iconic landscape there. That's the island of Bora Bora in French Polynesia. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.